in John chapter 18, we've been, the, the chapter begins at the tail end of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, and what happens there is, is it goes, the text of chapters are added by man, chapters and verses. And so it flows right into that they go across the brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested, where Judas betrays him and all of that. And, and we did do some gospel blending on that because John goes right to the arrest. And there was a great deal that went on prior to to that in the garden with Jesus' agony, the agony of love we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then last week we looked at his being arrested. What was involved in that where Peter comes up and probably from behind cuts off this guy named Malchus's ear and Jesus says, wait, Peter, put away your sword. You don't understand. It's time for me to take the cup. And, and so we've looked at that. And then we've looked at when Jesus was taken before Annas. Uh, the creepy high priest. And, and the reason I say that is he wasn't literally the high priest. In Rome's eyes, he had been deposed in 15, in the year 15. He, he served for about 10 years. But he still had absolute control over the priesthood in Israel. So Rome didn't recognize him, but Israel did. So he was still the big cheese, but he didn't have any legal authority. So they take him to him first. And we, we looked at the trial before Annas last week and, and how Jesus really kind of tongue-tied the guy because, uh, you know, Annas says, tell me, you know, who are your people and what are you teaching them? And he says, I've done nothing in private, nothing in secret. I, everything's been public. And that one of the soldiers hits Jesus with the palm of his hand. And I was thinking about how that would hurt. I mean, and it was the very beginning of the abuse and the mockery and, and the the total... Um, uh, insult to Jesus physically that he would begin to suffer with that soldier hitting him and it would go on through all of these six trials. He would be continually abused, continually mocked, continually spat upon, crown of, I mean, the whole deal. And we'll look at that more as we get further towards the crucifixion. But here, when we're looking at uh, the reason why I'm going to pause, and I, I've gotten this handout for you, is you'll see that uh, in the, the second slide I have here, it has, there's some yellow here. Go ahead and bring it up if you would, Nick. The next one. All right. We're going to concentrate, as I mentioned, on John's gospel. What John does is he focuses on two trials. All right. Notice on the top, it's, it's Jesus before Annas, as we were just talking about. And that's the religious trial that he is going to endure. And then John goes right to, he doesn't go into the other trials. He goes right to the trial before Pilate. And the reason is John wants to give a representation of Jesus being tried in the eyes of the religious leaders and the political trial that he went through with Pilate. So he wants to give his readers an understanding of both. He doesn't go into detail on the rest, but that doesn't mean that the rest are not important. And what I began to read, and, and if you'll notice here, there's a red arrow down here that, because John looks at both of the trials before Pilate as one event. And the trial that he has before Herod slips right into the middle there by, by looking at the other Gospels, you see that it's inserted right in the middle of the narrative in the Gospel of John. So I don't want you to be confused by that. John presents it as one because of his particular point of view. Now, I want to talk about points of view for a few minutes, and we're going we're gonna to do a bit of an exercise here this morning. And I'm going to read you three statements. 
Uh, and you're going to wonder, what on earth, Pastor John, are you talking about? We're talking about the trials of Jesus, but it will make sense, I promise. The first is this. It says, I saw this blue truck that came from my left, blew through the intersection, and jumped the curb. Then I heard crashing sounds like they hit something before the truck took off and disappeared. That's statement number one. Number two, standing on the corner with my friend... I heard tires screeching, then looked up and saw a drunk driver in a green pickup come from my right and then swerve and miss to miss a southbound car before going into an orchard and crashing. Here's the third statement. I was sitting on my front porch when this lunatic in a truck comes barreling straight at me. If the guy hadn't hit one of my walnut trees and then my John Deere, he, I think he might have run up on my, right up on my porch. He didn't get far. He took out his transmission when he hit a rock in my field. Okay, so there we have three distinct statements that you could look at and think, could these possibly be talking about the same thing? And the answer is absolutely, because what I've done is I've given you information here without any context. Okay, and and so often when we uh, approach God's word, if we don't approach it with context in mind, it can look isolated and it can look weird. We can read the gospels and again, trying to blend the gospels and go, well, that doesn't fit. Well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, here we have one guy that comes from the left, one guy that comes from the right, and one guy says he came straight at me. So the three of these are accurate, but we're going to add context. I'm going to show you some slides now. This is, we're going to go to the scene of an accident. Okay, Uh, and and I just thought that this was fun. I I wanted to just develop this a little bit, and then we'll move on. But eyewitness accounts. What we're looking at in the Gospels is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke being synoptic. In other words, most of their information is in common, a great deal of it. And then John being unique. Uh, It doesn't mean that John didn't see and wasn't part of all of these things, because he was there with Jesus through the whole deal. But he's giving his account of what he saw and, and what he experienced. So the first is a blue-green pickup, vehicle one. Now you'll notice in this little, in the, the, the diagram, that vehicle one, this is, it shows a progression as he goes. This is the same vehicle, but as he goes, he goes, he hits a, a, a bus stop sign. See where it says POI, that means point of impact, okay? And so it's talking about the same vehicle as he progresses through uh, this diagram, and this would be like a police, I actually got this from a police diagram, and I, I changed it around for our purposes this morning. So he goes, and he hits a, a bus stop sign, point of impact, and then he continues on, and he hits a tree, point of impact, and then he continues on, and he hits a tractor, point of impact, and then there's a fluid line, if you'll see, and he goes out onto the highway, and he gets to a certain point, and his truck won't go anymore. So what we have is this guy, he crashes into a bus stop, a tree and a tractor, and he returns to the roadway before breaking down northbound on Payne Road. Now see, it says Somerset Manor Drive and then Payne Road at the bottom there. That's this inner. So going to the first statement that I give you now, now I'll give you context because you can look at the diagram and I'll read it again. And now look at the next slide, please. Next slide, please. Or not. Are we having trouble with it? There we are. All right. 
I saw this blue truck that came from my left. This is a guy standing on the northeast corner of the intersection. This blue truck that came from my left, he blew through the intersection and jumped the curb. Then I heard crashing sounds like they hit something before the truck took off and disappeared. Now, notice where he's standing. The, the rear end of the truck would block him hitting the tree. It would block him hitting the tractor. And there's a building to the north of him. So as the truck takes off, he doesn't know it breaks down. So he just says the guy took, took off. So adding context to this, we're seeing from this guy's point of view exactly what happened. And every bit of it's true. So the next one, witness two... Standing on the corner with my friend, I heard tires screeching and looked up to my right and saw a drunk driver in a green pickup speed past me, then swerved to miss a southbound car on pain before going into an orchard and crashing. So this guy looks up and he sees that there's a south. So you wonder, why would the guy veer off the road? Evidently, there was a southbound car. It's not shown here, but this eyewitness account says there was a southbound car. The guy diverted and he figured he was drunk because he's driving crazy. So he's, you're, we're going into presuming now. Uh, he doesn't have evidence to that, but that's what he's seeing. He's assuming he's drunk and that he goes in. He's blocked but not all the way. Now, it says that he goes into an orchard and crashes. It says that he's standing there with his friend. Now, what happens if you're standing on a street corner with your friend and you see this guy come plowing through and he goes into the field across the street and all that? The first thing you're going to do is, did you see that? And he doesn't see the guy get up or start his car again or his truck and take off. So he just knows the guy went in there and crashed. The next slide. Third witness. This is where we have the guy up on the front porch. See the building up in the top left, the blue cross at the red outline. That's showing where this, the, the different eyewitnesses are. So he's there and he's sitting on his front porch when a lunatic, he's scared. Now fear generates lots of stuff in us, doesn't it? So he's really frightened because this guy's coming right at him. He's, and he, so he calls him a lunatic. He's, now he's calling names, but he's saying he doesn't care about the truck's color. It, now, when we looked at the police report, it said it was a blue-green truck. One guy called it blue, one guy called it green. This guy doesn't care because the thing's coming right at him. And so this guy, it's barreling straight at me. And if the guy hadn't hit one of my walnut trees, so we know now he's the owner of the property. And then my John Deere, oh, there was a tractor. I think he might have run right up on my porch. He didn't get far because he took out his transmission when he hit a rock in my field. So the guy goes up and he stalls up on the top. All of that is to say this, folks. In Second Peter, next slide, Second Peter 2.16, Peter says this. He says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Now, I just gave you one. Uh, I don't know if it's all that cunning, but it was a fable. Um, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when we look at the four gospels, when we look at blending the four gospels, we have to understand where these guys look from. It's, it's all important. So now the first one is when we look at Matthew, Matthew is, Matthew presents Jesus as Messiah. All right. So this is the most structured of the gospels. It's the most in depth of the gospels, it, it, and he goes into great detail as far as connecting Jesus to the Jewish mind as their expected Messiah. The, and it, it's written with the Jewish reader in mind. So messianic 
Christians would connect with this in the first century when Matthew wrote it. The second is when we look at Mark, the gospel according to Mark, Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. We see that he suffered and died for us. It's the most dramatic. Mark is the most fast pace of the gospels. It's a short gospel. It's the shortest, but it's also very dramatic. And Mark says it immediately, very often through that gospel. And it's, it's a quick moving, fast paced gospel. And it's written to, with the Roman reader in mind because the Roman reader wouldn't really care about Jewish things. We see that with Pilate in the text that we're looking at today. So the, the Jewish reader wouldn't really care or the Roman reader wouldn't care about Jewish customs and, and a Messiah and all that. But what Mark wants to do is present this is the suffering servant. This is the one, God, the man that, that came, the God man that came to suffer and to be crucified for the sins of the world. So the next one would be Luke. As we look at Luke here, again, standing on a different corner of the intersection, and we look at Luke, he presents Jesus the man in his humanity. Luke looks very much at Jesus as as fully man. We know he's fully God and fully man. And that he has to be presented as man in the eyes of the people. And Luke is writing primarily to a Greek audience. He starts his gospel with talking about uh, the things that I want to, I want to share with you the things that, that, that I've seen. And he's talking to a guy by the name of Theophilus. Now he's either a guy or a group. Nobody really knows, but Theophilus is Greek, and it means um, uh, lover of God, Theo and Phileo. And it's, it's, so he's saying most excellent Theophilus, and is that a person, group of Christians that he's writing to, lovers of God, maybe. But we know that Luke's emphasis was on the Greek audience. And so I know that this is kind of getting into detail and stuff, guys, but it's really important that we understand that when we don't think that the Gospels agree, and sometimes they really don't look like they agree, we'll look at some text this morning that appears that way, that that doesn't, that doesn't change the veracity or the authenticity or the strength of the Scriptures. It's very, very important that we understand that when we come to a problem with the scriptures, generally that turns out to be our problem with the scriptures and not the scriptures problem themselves. So it's just really important as we study God's word that we understand that it is God breathed, that it is the word of God. And so we look at um, the gospel of John finally and where we've been presenting God the son. Jesus is God and revealing the Father to us. Over and over again, Jesus points to the Father in this gospel, as we've seen over these past, what, 16 months that we've been in this gospel. And so it's the most theological of all of the gospels. It's where we develop a great deal of our theology and our doctrines about God, about God the Father, God the Son. Uh, it's where we develop a great deal of our theology that has to do with salvation, that has to do with atonement, that has to do with the person and the work of Christ. Because John develops both of those beautifully through this, as we've been looking at. So, And it was written to everybody. Uh, that's why John is unique. It's different. John didn't have a specific audience in mind. He wanted to present Jesus, the God-man. So Christians, just to summarize here, we base our confidence on two truths. 
All right. The first is in Second Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, in the word there is pneuma. It means God breathed, that God took these men and he anointed them to write. He breathed truth into them. He breathed the scripture through them as they penned these things, as they penned their unique accounts of who Jesus was and is and what he came to do, what he accomplished, what his work was and is. And so we base it on that. And there's another thing too. Remember we were talking about parables uh, a couple of weeks ago. And what Jesus did with parables is he revealed truth to those who had come to believe and he concealed truth from those who had not. And the parables serve those two purposes. It's very clear as you look at the parables and you unpack them that that's the purpose and the intent of the parables of Christ. He is revealing truth. In Luke chapter 8, to you it's been given to know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to the rest it's in what? Parables. See? Uh, And so an elementary rule of Scripture is that God has deliberately included seeming contradiction in his word to snare the proud. And this is true. If you look, Luke chapter 10, verse 21 tells us he has hidden the things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Uh, purposely choosing foolish things, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to confound the wise. So as we look at these things, as we say, well, Lord, how does that apply to my life? I hope that it helps to give us clarity and understanding as we study God's word and we see things, because the more you study, the more you're going to see that there are things that, that maybe don't quite add up, And I would just encourage you, prayerfully approach those things. uh, Ask the Lord to reveal it to you and to be able to give you clarity of mind. Don't allow seeming inconsistencies because we could look at that. I mean, here's a guy that says the, the truck came from the left. A truck came from the right. The truck came straight at me. It's all the same scene. And you could look at that and say, well, it didn't. It, there's an inconsistency. One, uh, no, he said it came from the left. No, he said it came from. Well, no, he said it. It's not an inconsistency. Is that very, we very often don't have the broader picture. I was talking with somebody before church about uh, the four contexts that I use when I study when when I'm preparing to teach. Uh, one is I look and I spend time first before I, when I'm preparing to teach, folks. I just spend time with the word. And, and uh, one of the, the rules of Bible interpretation is look for the simplest explanation. What does it say? Who's it saying it to? Why is it being said? And, and how is it that this has come about? What's the broader interpretation? So but the first context I look at is the textual context. And you don't have to be a Greek or a Hebrew scholar. You have to understand how to use a lexicon, and that's fine. But I will look at are there are there nuggets? Are there things that are revealed in the original writing that are not in English? And we get into John chapter 21 and we look at Jesus on the edge of the Sea of Galilee uh, having made breakfast for his guys. We're going to see when he has an interaction with Peter, it says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. Does three ring a bell, Peter? Um, but he does that. And their interchange, their, the way that they respond to one another looks kind of simplistic on the surface. But when you look at the original language, there are some huge things going on in that. 
the difference between the word agape, the love of God, and phileo, a brotherly love. And there is, there's a big interplay that goes on there. So that's just, again, you look at the textual context, and then you look at the contextual context. So I gave you a text without a context when I first read those things to you. And I, you know, if, and I don't know how you responded, but I would be going, what on earth is he talking about? I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me. But then as I added context, you're going, oh, okay. He's talking about people in different places on this intersection when there's this guy that wrecks his truck. Um, and then the next thing is the cultural context. Uh, to understand the Bible, very often we have to go back and look at the culture. Well, it says in First Corinthians that women shouldn't wear makeup and they shouldn't wear jewelry. They should uh, not show their hair. I mean, all that stuff. That's, so what do we leave back there and what do we bring forward? What's important? And we know that with God, it always goes to the condition of the heart. And so with that being the case, we say, okay, Lord, what is it, what is it that you're trying to say in this? Well, a general rule, an overarching principle, instead of getting into the weeds on trying to make doctrines out of things like that, overarching principle is don't try to stick out. Uh, I can tell you a story that happened when I was in Bible college, but I'll, I'll resist because I want to cover some ground here. So the point is, folks... Just as sort of a primer for getting further into John chapter 18 as we take these junctures and we look at where the narrative, we could split off and go to the other Gospels and look at all of these trials. You've got that in your hand, hopefully. If you don't, then grab one. Uh, and I encourage further study if you'd like. And, and yet we're going to look at these two specific trials uh, we looked at one last week with Annas, the religious trial, the 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 religious leaders, and again, mentioned that Annas was, he was the ringleader, he was the guy in charge, even though he had no authority as far as Rome was concerned, he had great authority with the Jews. And so we looked at that, and now we're going to look at, uh, well, in, in, let's see, verse, in verse 23 of chapter 18, Jesus answers Annas. He says, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And what he's doing is he's challenging Annas and the guy that struck him, the soldier, because he's saying, you know, all I've done is spoken openly. I haven't held anything back. I haven't spoken things in secret. And yet this guy, he smacks Jesus probably in the head with the palm of his hand. And, and Jesus is saying, why did you do that? If I've spoken evil, then make it known. If you have witnesses, and that's really what he's getting at, is they were trying to try him without any witnesses. And, and they're going on hearsay. And Jesus is essentially asserting his rights and saying, you know, if I've said something wrong, if there's something you need to address, then bear witness of the evil. But if what I've said is good, then why are you striking me? Why are, what, what is this? What's going on here? He's essentially exposing them. What's interesting is Annas has no response to that. And Annas says uh, in verse 24, he says, it says that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and John doesn't cover the trial before Caiaphas. Uh, he references it only, but he says that Annas sent him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas actually sent him to the Sanhedrin, and that's not covered in this gospel either. And we'll look at that as we go. But Annas essentially is stumped by Jesus. He doesn't have a response. All he knows is he wants Jesus dead. 
And, and so he's not able to respond. We know that what had happened, and we looked at it in the text last week, was that John had gotten in because he knew somebody in the high priest's um, house, uh, either his servants or he knew Annas himself, and, and that he'd gotten in and that he had actually come and gotten Peter in. We looked at Peter's first denial last week when uh, the girl says, are you also one of his disciples? There wasn't anything confrontational or, you know, she wasn't trying to jack him up at all. She was just asking a question because she knew that John was. She knew John. And it was the girl that John had spoken to and said, hey, here's my friend, let him in. And they brought him into the courtyard of the high priest. And so Peter's in there. And, and that's where we pick up the narrative this morning. In verse 25, uh, it says that now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. He's inside the courtyard of Annas's house. Now, remember, I talked last week, Annas's house is here on one side. Caiaphas's house is here on the other side. We looked at uh, the, the sort of the dungeon in Caiaphas's house where it's, it's assumed through church history that uh, Caiaphas put Jesus down in the hole uh, and, and that was a, just a, I stood in that thing and looked up and it was, it was striking at any rate. So Simon Peter stood standing and warming himself. It says, therefore they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. He, he makes an assertive denial now, uh, instead of just calmly saying, no, no, it's not me. That's what he had done with his first denial. And so he's heating up. Again, you've got to assume, because Luke tells us that Jesus and John could see each other, okay? And Jesus, or Peter perhaps, had seen Jesus get hit. And so he's getting really upset inside. He's upset anyway because they carted him off. And now he's seeing that the abuse is beginning to get heaped on him. And you can assume that Peter is starting to have a lot of angst inside, probably feeling pretty powerless because there is, as we mentioned last week, they came with upwards of 600 soldiers to arrest him. And then the temple guard on top of that. So it wasn't a small deal that was going on here. And here's Peter, the one who just hours before had sworn, Lord, I will never forsake you. I not like these. And he actually puts the other men down and elevates himself. And so here he is warming his hands by the enemy's fire. And one of them says, you're not also one of his disciples. And so his second denial is this. And so the other thing that's interesting about this is this question is posed to him in the negative. You're not also with those guys. And so we can tell that there's some suspicion growing here with the people in the crowd as he's warming himself. Uh, remember, it says it was a cold night. He's over there just trying to stay warm and trying to stay up with what's going on. He'd been up all night. Uh, it's got to be more than a little frazzled at this point. Verse 26, one of the servants uh, of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, had Peter not cut off Malchus' ear, maybe uh, he wouldn't have been recognized. But this is a, a and, and Malchus, I mentioned, he's an interesting guy. That, that is the last healing that Jesus did. Took this, you know, I don't know, did he pick his ear up off the ground and slap it on his face and, you know, maybe square it up? <laughs> I have no idea. But the point is, Malchus healed. It was the last healing that he did, or Jesus healed him. It was the last healing that he did. There one time, <clears throat> my daughter, when she was 16 years old, had a VW bug. And she and I, it was going to be a project car for she and I to do. 
And, um, you know, I was going to switch over from 6 volts to 12 volts, and we had all these plans to put some cool wheels on it and, you know, maybe an exhaust that was a little louder and all that. And so she had this VW Bug. I had already gone to church because I was associate pastor at the time at a church that was about 31 miles from home. And so I was over at the church, and this cop shows up, and he says, Mr. Terry, I need... I need to talk to you now. He ended up coming to our church after that. that was cool, but it wasn't a great introduction for me. Uh, he says, it's been a terrible wreck. Your daughter hit an oak tree with her VW on the way to church, and she took the steering column in the chest, and uh, she had to get life flighted. was in ICU for a long time. And she's, the, the steering column came a sixteenth of an inch from her heart. And so um, anyway... Uh, and you're, she's going to one hospital, your son's going to another hospital, because her, my, my son, her brother was sitting next to her, he was riding shotgun, and when they hit this oak tree, she took the steering column, well, he took the dashboard, and he rounded the dashboard out, both of their seatbelts, they hit with such force that both of their seatbelts snapped. And they were older seatbelts, because it was an older car, but they snapped, and they were both thrown out of the vehicle. And my son, on the way out, something snagged his ear, and it cut his ear almost completely off. And after I knew my, my babies, my, my kids were going to be okay, and my son was home, I sort of had a nickname for him. I called him Malchus. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and yeah, he'd come out of his bedroom. He's got this bandaged up head and said, how you doing, Malchus? And uh, shut up, Dad, you know, all that. So anyway, I can't read this story without thinking about that series of events in my life. So in verse 26, it says, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? In verse 27, then Peter denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Now, in the Gospel of John, that's it, as far as the denials of Christ, as far as the, the narrative goes. Uh, the scene shifts here, but I want to take a moment and look in Luke chapter 22, because in verses 61 and 62, I just picture this scene, and, and, and it's, it's just so sobering that when the rooster crowed, it says in Luke, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He didn't have to say anything. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. It says in Luke that Peter went out and wept bitterly, broken. Now, as we move along here, we're spend any time there. But the second trial, this is again, in, in Matthew and in Mark, we see that Jesus goes before Caiaphas. He's the real high priest. He's the genuine high priest, the one who was holding that office that year. And when he goes before Caiaphas, they end up spitting upon him. They beat him. They strike him. And, and they mock him saying, prophesy to us, Christ and, and it's a horrible scene. And again, I'm not going to spend time there, but just to summarize, the second trial was before Caiaphas, the high priest. The third trial being before the Sanhedrin. And that's the ruling puppet government in Israel. Seventy men, 71. And, and 
what it was, was they were the ones who were charged with maintaining order in Israel under Rome. Now, the Romans had their guy in charge, and, and Pilate was the governor of Judea, which was in that general region, and in included Jerusalem. So Pilate's the political governor, the political leader, um, and Caiaphas is the spiritual leader. But we know that he was, I mean, he's son, the son-in-law of Annas, so yeah, we know how he's going to go. And we know through other things we've seen in the Gospel of John, talked about it last week, where he's the one who actually prophesied one man should die for the nation. And so this second trial before Caiaphas is, was, it was a really bad deal. The third one before the Sanhedrin, he goes before the Sanhedrin and Luke twenty two sixty seven it says that they're saying, if you're the Christ, tell us. So now he's before the whole council. And this is a legal trial. It was a legal trial with Caiaphas. It's a legal trial with um, the Sanhedrin. It was a mock trial before uh, Annas. But the third trial is he goes before the Sanhedrin, and that's shown in Luke chapter 22. Uh, so if you're the Christ, tell us. And it says, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. In other words, it's not going to yield anything. You've already made up your mind is what's implied. You want me dead. You've had me arrested. You got the Romans to cooperate with this whole arrest thing. And so now anything I say is not going to count for anything is essentially what he says to the, to the Sanhedrin. The fourth trial before Pilate is where we pick up the narrative in the Gospel of John again. And in John eighteen twenty eight, we see that it says, that, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. Now the Praetorium was the place where the Romans ruled from in Israel, in, in Jerusalem. It, and there's, there's some debate as to where the Praetorium was. Some people have it up near Herod's palace, uh, which was up the hill towards Mount Zion. Some people have it, and I think probably it was at the Fortress Antonia, which was actually off of the corner of the Temple Mount. There was a huge Roman fortress there, and that's where the troops were all stationed. And that's where it's fairly easy to assume that where Pilate would govern from. And so they take him to the Praetorium, lest they, and it says here, but they themselves didn't go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat, but that they might eat the Passover. I think that that's just interesting. Here these guys are so, and Jesus had told them just a couple of days before, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You, you neglect the, the weightier provisions of the, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the, the weightier provisions of the law, such as mercy and justice. And so he goes through these seven woes and, and that really lit these guys up. They didn't like it at all. And that just, it, it, it hardened their position to go after him. And so here he's, now he's before, uh, they're bringing him before Pilate and, and they take him to the Praetorium where, where Pilate is, it says that they wouldn't go in because they didn't want to be defiled. So here they are with God in the flesh, not wanting to be unclean, delivering up an innocent man, and they don't want to defile themselves by stepping on Roman property. And it's just a striking, striking, um, uh, oh, I lost the word, uh, but the, the contrast is huge here. Um, hypocrisy, that was the word I was looking for. Now, the other thing they mention here is Passover. Now, it says that they might eat the Passover. And this is one of those areas, going back to our slides earlier, 
Where, wait a minute now, when we looked at the Gospel of John in, in the upper room discourse, that five chapters from 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John, that Jesus ate the Passover with his men then. So now it says that they might eat the Passover, so that's ahead of them still. So how do we reconcile that? Well, you got one guy on one corner and one guy on another corner, and it looks like it doesn't agree. But remember, we've talked about what a Roman day is, or what an, a Jewish day is here, and their day started at sunset. So Jesus ate the Passover with them on Friday, even though it's Thursday night in our minds, it's Friday to them. And this is the next day. It's still Friday, and these guys had not yet had the Passover. Jesus did it that night. They evidently were going to do it that day. Or it's also possible, because of the sheer volume of lambs that would have to be slaughtered at Passover, because people from all over the empire would come with their animals or come and buy one there uh, at Annas' Bazaar. We talked about that, what a charade that was. But they would have to buy one there, and so because the priests would be overwhelmed with animals to slaughter, perhaps they put it into two days. Nobody knows. It doesn't bug me. I hope it doesn't bug you that they talk about having had the Passover. Now they're talking about they're going to have the Passover here. And again, critics, higher critics look at this and go, ha, there's a problem with the Bible. No, not really. Not if you understand that these guys are speaking from different perspectives. And John is the one writing here. And, and again, one of the things that, that the Lord always does, one of the things we see in his word is he always, always, always gives room for unbelief. And he always does. Why? Because as Paul says in the book of Romans, the just shall live by faith. Do you believe this or do you not? Are you looking for problems? It's not because you have this great interest in looking for problems. You're looking for reasons not to believe. And that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. And, and so these guys, uh, they, they come and they take Jesus up to the praetorium. But we see that John's emphasis is not, did they have Passover the night before? Or are they going to have Passover the next day? The, John's emphasis here in this gospel is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of all that had been spoken before. Verse 29, And Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, a little background on Pilate here. He had married Caesar Augustus's granddaughter. And so he got a job. It was sort of a nepotism thing. Um, he was a man that history, secular history tells us, of particularly low character. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a creep. Um, creepus. That's the, no, it's not. Um, but he, he was a cruel man. Uh, there's another place where the Bible tells us that he mingled the, the blood of people that he had had executed with the sacrifice, with the offerings. And, with, and, and it was like, this guy hated Jews. And he, because he was an insecure man, I can presume, again, I'm presuming that he was an insecure man because he ruled with an iron fist and, and, and he was obstinate and violent. He used those as tools with which to rule when he didn't need to. Uh, so he asked, he says, what are you accusing him of? And they answer, verse 30, uh, this, is, this, 
this is one of those verses that I read it and my mouth just kind of drops open and it's like, seriously, really, come on. They answered, they said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. There's a good reason. They don't have any charges. They don't have anything that Rome would understand. And they don't. And they go on to assert that you know, he's claiming to be a king and, all, and that's part of the interaction that goes on further in this chapter. But the point is, is here the religious leaders, they deliver Jesus up to Pilate and Pilate says, what are you accused of? What are you accusing him of? And they say, well, um, bad things. And, and if it wasn't bad things, we wouldn't have brought him. And, and it's, it's putrid hypocrisy. This is the essence of hypocrisy. They have nothing to say, but they know because they had gotten Pilate to go along with, I mean, they couldn't have gotten the Roman cohort had Pilate not approved it. So they're figuring, okay, we've got it now. We got Pilate to go along with the arrest. So now we'll get him to go along with putting this guy to death. And and so the interesting thing I think about this too is it's, it's this is really, it's kind of the world's definition of justice. You look in the news, and I'm not going to get all political on, on yet, I promise. I look in the news, though, and I see where there's a total circumventing of due process that's becoming more popular in our land. In today's headlines, I see there's a circumvention of due process with certain people. And it's like, no, that's just not the way it was set up. And that's not how Roman law determined. That's not how Jewish law determined. But they're totally blowing off due process here with Jesus. And we see the same thing today because we live in a fallen world. It's just as fallen today as it was then. And it's what happens when you have godless people in charge. You're going to end up with godless results. They're being, as I've mentioned before, they're just being very faithful to their nature. And unless you have a new nature, because that's what Jesus offers, then you're going to just go along with it. It's, it's just tough stuff. So Pilate says to them, he says, you take him and judge him according to your law. He says, no accusation, no judgment. I'm not going to do anything. You, you don't have anything. You're not telling me anything of substance here. So just, come on, you guys, you're wasting my time, is what he's saying. Just, just go and deal with it. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, I think they call that tipping your hand. Uh, They still don't have an accusation. They just want him dead. Verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled. This is interesting. Which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. Now, do you remember back in chapter 3 in verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He was signifying the type of death that he would die. And what John's referring to here is what Jesus said there. All right? But it goes further than that. There was something in the Old Testament called the curse of the law. And Deuteronomy chapter 1 says, chapter 21 says this. It says in verses 22 and 23 of Deuteronomy 21, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And Jesus knew that that was what he was taking on. He knew when he talked about the cup, remember we talked about the cup. The cup is what? The wrath of God. Why is the wrath of God coming on Jesus? Because he's becoming the curse for you, for me, so that we could live. And and he answers that. Now, so you look back and you see back in Deuteronomy, 1,500 years before Jesus is standing here before Pilate, and, and John is saying so that the word would be fulfilled. And then you look ahead 30 or 40 years after that, going to the book of Galatians, and the apostle Paul says this. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, <coughs> excuse me, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He, Paul refers back to Deuteronomy. Jesus knows that that's what he's got to do. And so we see the past, the present, the future uh, from where Jesus is standing and that it's all about the word of God being fulfilled. And then Paul reminds us of that by saying it's about the word of God being fulfilled in our lives. Folks, if you don't see your life as being tucked into the pages of scripture, then you really need to adjust your worldview. Because we are living in the last times. We are living at the end of the age. I don't know when it's going to be. I just know it's going to be soon. And I truly believe that. Because things that have been prophesied to be fulfilled have been fulfilled all around us. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled in order for the Lord to come and to take his church out of here. And Peter says, in light of that, what sort of people ought we to be? living our lives in the sight of God. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. So, verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate's, you know, he's being exposed to this Jesus guy and, and he's seeing a guy that doesn't fit what a revolutionary or a, or, or a nut job would be in his mind because there was, you know, after Herod the Great died in, in, when Jesus was an infant, after Herod died, there was a lot of insurrection in Israel and there was a lot of political wrangling and there were people that did come up through time. And, and again, secular history shows there were people that came up, there was a lot of political unrest and people that would assert that they were the new king. And so what Pilate is doing here is he's saying, are you the king of the Jews? What's this all about? I, I'm not getting this. These guys are accusing you and they're, they're making these assertions, but the man before me, I am having trouble reconciling with the accusations that are there. He's not fitting his pictures. So he's not a revolutionary. He's not a criminal. He's not a crackpot. And so Pilate's trying to figure it out. He goes back into the praetorium, calls Jesus in, and he starts to question him privately. Uh, Verse 34, and Jesus answered him and said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you about this concerning me? Do you really want to know, Pilate, is what he's saying? Or are you just puppeting 
the religious leaders and their accusations against me. Which is it? What's your motive? Is essentially, and it's something the Lord does with us. He exposes the motives of our hearts very often. I love in Hebrews, it says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, things that are soulish, things that are spiritual, and, and that it divides between the thought and the intent of the heart. And because our hearts, folks, are deceitfully wicked above all else, who can know them is what the Bible tells us. The thought of my heart might be one thing. The intent of my heart might be another. If I wanted to help somebody across the street, the thought of my heart might say, well, they're struggling. I need to give them some help. The intent of my heart either is genuine or it might be, well, you know, be kind of cool being seen as being this really benevolent guy that's really helpful and all that. You see, the thought and the intent of our heart can be different. And, and that's why prayer is so important, because we can have those two things aligned as we go. I'm not doing this to be seen. I'm doing it because the person needs help. That's the thought and the intent of the heart lining up. I'm helping this person, but I'm kind of hoping that I hope my wife sees that because I want her to be proud of me or whatever it is. Uh, So again, Pilate's not seeing things line up in this scene with Jesus. Uh, And and so Jesus says, are are, are you asking because you want to know or are you asking on behalf of those who have already condemned me? Verse 35, Pilate answers and says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? He's pressing now. When he says, am I a Jew? He's, he's essentially saying, I'm not influenced by these people. I hate them. And he had a hatred for the Jews. He did not like them at all. And so, not because I'm sided up with these guys. I'm not a Jew. But I really want to know what you've done. What grounds are you here on? And I would submit to you folks that if Pilate had based his adjudication of this case, if he had based his decision in this case solely upon that question, what have you done? Peter or Jesus would have been acquitted. He would have been totally exonerated. He had done nothing. That's why these are six illegal trials. Trumped up charges. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Now, the the New American Standard translates, not from here, is not of this realm. And, And I looked up in the original language, what it would mean is if Jesus was standing there and he motioned, like this, from my right to my left or from my left to my right. And when he says, not of this realm, he's saying, not of this physical realm. He's saying, if it was, you wouldn't be here standing in management. You wouldn't, there would be a big fight and my kingdom, his kingdom was infinitely more powerful than Rome. We know that. But he's saying, my kingdom, for now, my kingdom is not of this realm. And, And so, uh, in, in, as he is answering, uh, he's saying that his kingdom is mightier than Rome and he's 
we also know that he is over this world, but he's not of this world. I, I look at the book of Revelation, I think it's in chapter 5, where uh, Paul or, or where John the Apostle, same guy that's writing this, weeps because no one is found worthy to receive the title deed. And then one, as a lamb, comes forward who is worthy. Because we know that what Jesus did at the cross was he, he won the authority, the right to take the title deed to the earth back. But he has left it in the hands of the God of this world, Satan himself, for this time. I, I've kind of jokingly said the earth is in escrow uh, before. because And it, it is in that sense. And yet we know that he is the one who owns all of this. He won the title deed to the earth back from Satan. That was surrendered in the Garden of Eden. If you remember, man had dominion over the earth and he surrendered that to the enemy in that, in, in, in the garden. And here, as Jesus is going to the cross, he will take the title, the, the authority to have the title deed delivered back. But he allows things to go on in this fallen world for a period of time. We call it the church age. We call it the age of grace. And when he comes again, he's going to wrap it up. And he will take the title deed to the earth back. And that's when he will come back and establish his rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years to reign personally on earth. And it says with a rod of iron. Uh, I don't see that as him being like this mean guy, but I see it as him ruling very secure in his rule. The first time he comes, he comes as the Lamb of God. He comes as the servant. He comes to suffer. He comes on a donkey. The second time, he comes on a horse. And he comes to make war with the kings of the earth as though they could actually rally together and think they could win against God. And then he sets up his kingdom. I'll leave the rest of the eschatology to Harvey on uh, Tuesday night. But uh, it's just an exciting time that we live in, folks. Again, our lives are in the middle here. We see what's taken place. We see what's going to take place. And our lives are here. In our worldview, we do well to have a Christian worldview that is a biblical worldview. My worldview isn't rooted in, I I mean, I used to work in corporate America. I know what that's like. I was telling somebody the other day, I had no desire to get to the top of that heap. None. And was it, yeah, I was successful. I just did all that stuff. You know, I had businesses and did the whole deal. and, And yet, no, my worldview is here. Shepherding the flock with you folks, I love it here. My wife and I love what God has called us to do. And I would rather do this to the end of my days than to get out there and to try to run the corporate ladder again. And I'm not putting it down because we have to work. I'm just saying is that where is your value? Where do you place your trust? I knew I couldn't place my trust in corporate America. Things like mergers come along and knock you off your seat and all of that. But you know, it's just a great thing to examine ourselves on and say, you know, where am I putting my trust? Is it in the things of this world? Or is it in Christ and his kingdom? His kingdom's not of this realm. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? So now he's getting to, he's been pressing him this whole time. So tell me who you are. And Jesus said, you know what? My kingdom's not of this realm. So Pilate's, he's kind of taking the inference here. All right, you're saying you're a king. Are you then a king? And and Jesus says, you say rightly that I'm a king for this cause. 
singular, I was born. And for this cause, singular again, I have come into this world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Pilate is not, he's, I still don't believe he's being sincere when he's saying, are you a king? Are you really a king? I think it's probably more like it. But he's asserting here, and, and I believe that there's sarcasm there when he's asking him if you're a king. He's saying, are you in competition with Rome? I really, my job here is to find out if you're, if you're truly asserting that you're a king, and there's no king but Caesar, and the people would say that shortly, then I need to find out if you're a threat to the political arena within which I rule. And that's what Pilate is getting at. He could care less what Jesus was to the Jews or wasn't to the Jews. But he's just there to find out, are you a threat to Rome? And we know that the answer would be no, but Pilate, again, would, he, you know, he's going he's gonna to waffle on that. Jesus says that everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And we studied that. Remember in chapter 10, uh, Jesus said, uh, of the Gospel of John, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Pilate, verse 38, said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Evidently, Pilate did not hear his voice because he's, he's, he doesn't believe. But when he says, I find no fault in him, I, I mean, and we'll close with this. All the way back in Exodus chapter 12, when the selection of the Passover lamb was to come about, God told Moses this. He said, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from until the 14th day of the month. So they selected the lamb on Nisan 10, and you, they would keep it till the 14th. They would do that so they could inspect it to see if it had spot or blemish. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, Israel shall kill it at twilight. The, the prophetic picture that's being fulfilled as Jesus is here before Pilate. Pilate is the one unknowingly, but he is the one who's standing there with the Lamb of God. The one who had come into town on the 10th, presented himself as Messiah to the nation and everybody was all excited with the hoopla. We looked at that, the four crowds. We'll look at them again when we get to the cross the same four crowds are there. So he's presented to Israel on the 10th and here four days later on the 14th, Pilate says, I can't find anything wrong with him. He's spotless. He, and he doesn't even know. He has no clue that he is fulfilling prophecy. That here's the Lamb of God being found without blemish standing before him. Folks, I, I look at the Word of God as, as we wrap up this morning. I look at the Word of God and, and I marvel. There are times where I, I just alone in my study as I'm looking at things and preparing or, or spending time just in the Word myself, that I, I just... I get to a place where I just want to know more. I want to know him more. I want to know him more intimately. 
because I see this stuff is true. Now, I don't know all about God's Word. I'm learning just like you. And yet I do know this, that it's true. And I do know that when Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus had said, and he, as he prayed just hours before, your word is truth. And, and so I just want to encourage you and, and, and myself as well. Be a student of the word, but not just so that you can pack your head with nifty facts. Uh, yeah, it's fun to look at things like you know, the analogy of a car accident and the different points of view and stuff. And, and to me, those kind of things help me to build my faith. They help me to have something I can sink my teeth into. And yet, his word and your soul and my soul are all that's getting out of here. The Bible tells us the word of God abides forever. And so do we. And so with that, I would just encourage you, spend time in his word. Spend time allowing his word to illuminate your thinking, to guide your steps, because that's what he says he wants to do in it. Spend time being, not just doing, but being a child of God. Allow him to inform your thinking because by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's going on in your life, but he does. I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort in the fact that he doesn't say he's going to keep us from going through stuff, going through trials, but he does promise us to be with us, to walk with us through them. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you for the magnificence of your word and how it links together through centuries and millennia and, and comes down through those centuries to us, intact, whole, inerrant. Lord, I pray for each one here. Let us be students of your word. And as we look at these accounts in the life of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our hero, Lord, let us take to heart that these things were done for us. Yes, they were done for them. But as Jesus himself told them in this wonderful gospel, that they were to go and allow their influence to come down through the generations to us. So we thank you, Lord, for uh, the permanence and for the authority of your word in our lives. And pray, Father, that as we approach you, that your word would be hidden in our hearts. And Lord, that you would have your way with us, that it wouldn't just be uh, to educate us, but that we would simply put it on and wear it. Because that's how you've designed it to be handled in our lives. So we thank you, Lord. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for each one. I pray, meet those who are going through trial. Just meet them in it. Give them wisdom. Those who are uh, in need of comfort, we pray that you're the God of all comfort, that you'd meet them there. And Lord, regardless of where we're at, we know that you're personal. And so we yield ourselves afresh to you. Pray your will would be done in us and through us as we go out there and, and we mix with this fallen, crazy, messed up, upside down and dying world in the week ahead. We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. And a good week.